Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Zamprin. Hamilton's tech sector is growing faster than any in the U.S., We'll tell you about a new support for sex workers in Hamilton. Ontario's budget has been tabled, and we're now getting ready to enter election mode. A man is going to run from Vineland to the CN Tower to raise money for homelessness. And the Hamilton Bulldogs sweep the Peets and move on to round two of the OHL playoffs. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton's tech sector is booming. Hey, don't take it from me. There is an analysis that shows that Hamilton is at the center of Canada's thriving tech labor force. Uh, Remove the word Canada. At the center of North America's thriving tech labor force. So much so that we are in the top five. Number four overall when it comes to the fastest growing tech sectors in North America. The tech talent in this city is off the charts. Calgary, number one, Vancouver, number two, Toronto, number three, Hamilton and Burlington, Burlington in the mix, too, is at number four. With the number of growth in the tech sector outpacing that of Seattle, San Francisco, New York City, and a bunch of other American communities. That is some amazing news. Carol Marillo is a senior business development consultant with the city of Hamilton and joins us now to talk about this story. Good morning, Carol. How are you? I'm good, Rick. How are you doing? I'm okay. The cities uh, where tech talent is booming uh, obviously includes Hamilton being number four in this list of North American cities. What are we doing right? <laughs> well, it looks like we're doing a lot right. Um, and, uh, you know, before I, I kick off, I just wanted to thank you for having me. Um, so as you said, Rick, uh, you know, that those numbers from LinkedIn, you know, first off, LinkedIn, uh, which we all know looks at company growth, startups, hiring across uh, all industries. Um, They look at tech talent, and for them to recognize um, what's happening in Hamilton is just further acknowledgement of the tech talent explosion that you just just mentioned. We've actually had, uh, over the last five years, our tech occupation grew by over 50% over the last five years, and we currently know that there's over 18,000 tech workers in the city of Hamilton. Uh, we also know, according to this list uh, on LinkedIn, where the cities where tech talent is booming, the top six are actually in Canada. Halifax and Winnipeg also outpacing those heavy hitter cities uh, and those traditional Czech giant cities, if you will, like Seattle and San Francisco especially. This this hasn't happened overnight. This has been a concerted effort to uh, boost the tech talent and the labor force in our country. Yeah, and I think, you know, you're comment about, you know, one of the great things about Hamilton is location, and we are very proud to be a part of the Innovation Corridor, along with Waterloo and Toronto. Uh, We are one of the largest uh, tech corridors that about five, ten years ago, as you said, this didn't happen overnight. About eight, ten years ago, we were starting to see all this growth from Waterloo, Hamilton to Toronto, and for us, we've been a part of that growth. What kind of investments in the tech sector has Hamilton made over the years? Well, I think, you know, this growth, you know, I can't, I have to share, you know, this win, um, this, this growth that's happening. It wouldn't happen without our, our, amazing partner, our amazing partners at McMaster, Mohawk, the Innovation Factory, um, you know, all of the, all of the work uh, that they put in to really share that we are a destination where talent thrives. One of the things that, you know, 
where startups and companies and why this corridor has been so attractive globally is because the things that we're doing right is, you know, Hamilton is a, an incredible city that has really um, changed its course and talked about and seen that those brick and bean spaces, all of the quality of life things that you find in these great communities that we share. We've got the great restaurants. We've got thousands of new residential units being built downtown. And I think for us, you know, right before the pandemic in 2019, one of our largest wins was landing an invest- investor fintech company called Q4. You know, they came in, they saw what was happening in Hamilton, and they landed here over 20,000 square feet of space right in the heart of downtown Hamilton. And, you know, we're talking about talent today. And one of the key things, you know, as we were working with Q4 was, you know, would they be able to attract talent? And I'm very proud to say, you know, working with them and our partners across the city, they were able to hire over 100 uh, tech workers in a matter of a month or two. We've got about a minute. Is um, are, are we tapped out or is there room to grow? Are we going to see more tech um, technology jobs created in this city? We are not. Um, you know, for us, it's, you know, we keep looking upwards. We just completed an ICT, Information Communication Tech Study, and we've got new investments, uh, technology and medical innovation center. We continue to work with our partners across Canada. You know, the tech story that we built and that we uh, continue to foster uh, it, it appears, and even through these times, that companies want to locate in Canada, and they're looking for exciting cities like Hamilton. It is certainly an exciting time, and these are great uh, jobs, great paying jobs with a bright future ahead. Carol, thanks for the time today. Thank you so much, Rick. That is Carol Morello, Senior Business Development Consultant with the City of Hamilton. Some of the jobs you can dive into or your kids or grandkids sometime down the road, a data engineer, back-end developer, software engineering manager, a data scientist, a support analyst, security analyst, a whole host of opportunities in or under the umbrella of technology and labor. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a new brick and mortar location that is going to support sex workers in Hamilton. It's located in the Barton and Lotridge area, and it's set to open, well, sometime next month. Why is this opening? What kind of impact is this going to have? Let's find out. Yelena Vermillion is the executive director of the Sex Workers Action Program in Hamilton, Swap Hamilton, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Elena. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and yourself. I'm I'm fantastic. Tell us about this new facility. What is it going to be used for? Awesome, yeah. So basically, um, we've been doing a lot of our work remotely, but the, the brick-and-mortar location is going to allow us to actually provide the counseling services, the program that we're doing, which ends in June, but we're applying for more funding in person so that there's more intimate, you know, like exchanges that can happen as far as counseling and therapy is concerned. We're also going to hold events such as film screenings, support space, support meetings, drop-in meetings, and then we're going to continue to host all of our archive in the location, uh, which we have um, we have a memorandum of understanding with the Hamilton Public Library, which is a really exciting, different um, project. But We'll be having our outreach project situated out of the building as well, so all of our bags, the supplies. And ultimately, we're just going to try to keep continuing to increase our capacity in in the community, um, working with other organizations to basically make the best impact we can in the community um, with dignity and with respect. So this is almost like a community center for local sex workers. Is that fair to say? Essentially, yeah. 
So sex work and sex workers for the very first time were criminalized by Bill C-36 or PCEPA um, in Canada, which essentially ignored the decision of the Supreme Court Bedford decision, which struck down many of the sex work laws that previously existed. So right now we are in a situation where sex workers, they can't organize their labor, they can't gather without being considered criminals, and really the people who are doing sex work are often marginalized, predominantly women, and and racialized people, people living with disabilities, people who might have um, housing insecurity. This idea of like a glamorous rich sex worker is very, very few and far between as far as it comes to the average. So we're we're here to support them, and we do have the support of the, the Barton uh, Business Improvement Area and our neighbor Mikey's Cream Pies, um, which is apt. So um, we we really you know appreciate just the fact that we've been embraced, but we also we understand there may be detractors, and that's sort of part of our role in the community. And what we want to take on is the education piece to reduce stigma, to help people understand that you know if you think of sex workers as criminals. Perhaps they, in law, the law, are deemed criminals at this moment, but it's erroneous, and that law is not absolute. Law is decided by people. So we we take a holistic approach, uh, and we're really excited to have the opportunity to do that in a brick-and-mortar location. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Yelena Vermillion, Executive Director of the Sex Workers Action Program of Hamilton Swap Hamilton, getting a new physical location, brick-and-mortar location, in the Barton and Lottridge area. What do you think the impact's going to be? Because I envision this place as a place where uh, you can decompress, you can talk about safety concerns, communicate with others. Is, is that the genesis and the, the, the drive forward for what this thing is going to be? You got it, Rick. It's about it's about community creating a safe space for people that aren't going to judge, that aren't going to, you know, treat people with contempt, um, regardless of the work they're doing. And and I just want to center the fact that we are only able to be doing this work because of the amazing partnership and allyship from other organizations in the community, such as Grenfell Ministries and the AIDS Network, who have both at different times been our fiscal sponsor for various grants. We also want to thank uh, Sasha, the Sexual Assault Support Center of Hamilton and Area, and Keeping Six for the work that they do in the community. So yeah, um, the space itself, uh, just to further answer your question with the archive project the archive project we work with the hpl is a collection of zines books films that center sex workers narratives and perspectives in an affirming way so that's the project we've taken on over the last two years it's comprised of quite a lot of media the actual archive is about 600 gigabytes itself so we plan on having film nights where community can be built maybe we can have um a book reading week and as restrictions are lifted and and the COVID is being um surmounted and things are going from pandemic to endemic we really want to be able to provide that intimate social space because that is often something lacking sex workers are often isolated by virtue of the law and how they avoid detection they often don't disclose that they do sex work because of the stigma associated with that and the invasiveness of society when they learn that. So we're really excited, Rick. Um, we we are grateful and we don't necessarily know if we'll be able to continue past the first year because of the limited funding, but we will continue to, to apply for funding where it's needed. And we also do some sustainable fundraising. So one example is with the space, we'll be able to contact local artists who either have art that 
centers the subject of sex work or that they, the artists themselves are affirming of sex work and don't have any problem associating their brand with that. We would, we would, we're going to reach out at sort of one of our plans to do that as well. So yeah, and we have, we have a nice printer, so we're going to sort of try to, if, if local places need things printed, that's also an idea. Lots we, of, you know, sky's the limit. <laughs> yeah, lots of stuff on the go as we're hearing. Uh, I wish you nothing but good luck, and hopefully that funding is continuous and, and this place can stay for years to come because it's certainly going to offer that safe space and that important place for you and others to uh, congregate and uh, and uh, go on about your day. Elena, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for uh, sharing that information with us. Absolutely. And could I just say one more thing before yeah. you let me go? So the, the counseling program, um, Sarlene Jane Pitts, she runs the business Hustle Hill Motivate. So she has been amazing. She's a psychotherapist, uh, um, an RSW, and she's also EMDR, EMDR trained. So just saying that so everybody knows that her skill set is wide. And if we are able to continue this program, subsidizing that therapy for sex workers, um, she's a, an amazing asset to the community. So any other psychotherapists that want to offer their labor um, in the future, please reach out. Wonderful stuff. Yelena, thanks for the time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yelena Vermillion, Executive Director, Sex Workers Action Program of Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is our plan. This is the budget that we're tabling, and we'll get the people of Ontario to vote on that budget. And I have full confidence in the people of Ontario that they will pass this budget. And as Finance Minister Peter Bethlen falvey Ontario's 2022 budget has been released. What is in it that appeals to Ontarians? If anything, well, let's ask our next guest. Sabrina Nanji is the founder of the Queen's Park Observer and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Sabrina, welcome back to the show. How are you? Hey, Rick. Happy Friday. Yeah, we made it. Barely, but we're here. Uh, themes in the budget uh, focused on affordability, mobility, health, employment. Not many surprises in this budget, I would say. Are there enough goodies to grab the voters' attention? Well, I think you're, you're absolutely right. There's not a lot of new, uh, you know, surprises in this in this budget. And I think, you know, the maybe the subliminal message from the PCs and, and the Ford government is steady as she goes. Uh, you know, that this is their pitch to voters because uh, the legislature adjourned right after, you know, there wasn't enough time to, to pass the, the budget in the House. So the big caveat to all of this is if voters like what they see in the budget uh, and, you know, the months uh, of announcements that we've had leading up to it, then they're going to have to give the PCs a second mandate. Uh, it's interesting to me, uh, you know, who it kind of shows you a little bit about who the PCs are appealing to as well. Uh, there's a lot of money for highway infrastructure, building and repairing roads, uh, you know, controversial highways like the 413 and the Bradford Bypass. Uh, uh, and, you know, even a gas tax cut temporary one for, for motorists, uh, you know, a kind of a vague pledge to look at auto insurance rates uh, a little bit more, uh, that type of thing. So obviously they, they want to appeal to drivers, uh, you know, that that could be a good play for the 905. It's a vote rich area. So take take this with a grain of salt, but not a lot of big uh, vote grabbing headlines uh, after, you know, reading this you know, almost 300 page document yesterday. Uh, I think one of the big ones, uh, and it tends to happen with with governments, you know, the conservatives aren't the first to do it, but just ahead of the election, they might leak out some some good news that uh, they would like to see in the headlines. And certainly, I think one of the big 
the big nuggets was a, a bigger tax cut for uh, folks earning up to $50,000 a year. So, you know, obviously we'll, we'll find out on June 2nd if, if that's enough to give the Conservatives a second shot at, at a majority. And what we're seeing in the polls so far is that they, you know, they're on track to, to win a, a second mandate. Bethlyn Falvey didn't rule out the possibility that the Tories could make changes to the budget if they're re-elected. Other parties calling this a bait-and-switch budget, given the finance minister's comments. Do they have a point? You know, I would say optics-wise, that was a bit of a fumble from the finance minister. Uh, you know, we were asking him point-blank, yes or no, uh, is this going to be the document that gets you know, reintroduced uh, in the House after June. Uh, and the minister sort of just left it up to voters, you know, saying that the people will have their say. And, you know, he's got a point there, but it was kind of left to uh, his, his spokesperson to, to clarify this will be the document, the premier's press secretary reiterating that. But not a great look from the finance minister, who was a little cagey when, when you know, facing the media. And that sort of allowed the opposition to have this line of attack. Uh, you mentioned bait and switch the line from Andrea Horvath. Uh, and, and this has been kind of a tricky budget for for the opposition critics to, to hammer the government on. You know, there's uh, it's sort of a status quo, steady as she goes uh, type type of uh, document. It's record spending, you know, almost two hundred billion dollars, which is, uh, you know, a complete turnaround from Premier Doug Ford, who, who swept a majority in 2018, promising to cut the gravy, as he sometimes likes to put it. So not a lot uh, for them to criticize uh, and not a lot of time to do it either because we're heading right into the campaign officially next Wednesday. Uh, you know, I, I thought uh, Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca ha- hit hard on the education funding, um, you know, maybe uh, a little bit of back and forth on the numbers there, but essentially, you know, lower than uh, expected funding on that front, even though it will be going up again in the, in the next three years. But uh, Del Duca also said this is kind of a lack of ambition from, from the PCs. So it's interesting to see how all the parties are framing it. And of course, uh, we'll see, you know, how it all shakes out on June 2nd. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Sabrina Nanji, founder of the Queen's Park Observer, talking about yesterday's unveiling of the latest provincial budget. You mentioned the opposition, uh, Liberals, the NDP. we got to throw the Greens in there as well. Between now and when the, the election is officially called, which is probably going to be sometime next week, are most people even paying attention at this point? Well, of course, I'd like to think so. Uh, being a political uh, nerd, you could, call, you could say at Queens Park, um, and you know, I think we've seen a lot of pivots happening, and uh, you know, that's kind of being echoed. Uh, I think you know the, the public's mood. Uh, you know, we didn't hear much about COVID. You know, from from any of the parties right now. When just a few months ago, we were sort of thinking this might be a, a bit of a referendum on, on the Ford government's handling of COVID. Uh, of course, you know, with restrictions lifting, maybe that's not top of mind for a lot of folks. Uh, and I think as the campaign uh, ramps up over the next few weeks, uh, about a month or so, that that people will start to to pay a bit more attention, but. Um, in terms of what I've been seeing from post and hearing from pollsters, uh, you know, in terms of whether this is a, a change election and, and those numbers uh, were very high in the last uh, two rounds in 2014 and 2018, um, you know, 
folks kind of seem to be, uh, I don't know if it's not paying attention or, or just a bit more uh, laid back on the whole thing. Of course, you know, as, as we get closer, as parties are, are door knocking, um, speaking about issues that that could change, of course, but summer is right around the corner. Uh, you know, restrictions, COVID restrictions are lifting. Folks are, are getting out more, uh, you know, getting back to some semblance of normality. And uh, just anecdotally, people that I've been speaking to that might not consider themselves conservatives or, you know, Ford supporters say uh, he's done an OK job. Uh, you know, he did the best he could in, in pandemic times. And so I think uh, it's going to be up to the parties to put out platforms that are either rallying voters to the polls uh, because, People tend to vote out governments or vote vote for governments and, uh, you know, uh, hanging out with incumbents, you know, sticking to the status quo uh, might just, uh, you know, keep keep the the lay of the land, how it currently is at Queen's Park, which is a conservative government. And uh, it's interesting to see who will be official opposition. I think we're getting a lot of similar promises from the Liberals and the NDP. Uh, the polls suggest that they've been sort of jockeying for, for second place here. So it's really going to be up to the campaigns to, uh, you know, make make a compelling case. Sabrina, fantastic insight as always. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the weekend. Thanks so much, Rick. That is Sabrina Nanji, founder of the Queen's Park Observer, breaking down the Ontario 2022 budget as uh, it will trigger a uh, provincial election campaign sometime next week. And we'll be voting in and around June the 2nd. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Doug Ford's going to go right back to cutting the minute this election is over if we give him the chance. And that's... That's not where people are at. People are telling me they want the services that have been broken for so long to finally get fixed. Welcome back to GMH on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. That is the voice of NDP leader Andrea Horvath, uh, MPP here in Hamilton Centre, concerned that yesterday's budget could be uh, the good old bait and switch. Well, here's the budget. Vote for us. And oh, when we get into power, well, we're going to switch everything around. If the PCs, if the Doug Ford Tories win the election in June, how will this budget impact you? That's a question that many are asking themselves. How economically sound is this budget? Jean-Paul Lamb is an associate professor of economics at the University of Waterloo and a former assistant chief economist at the Bank of Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jean-Paul, good morning. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. How would you describe the budget that was introduced yesterday? What words come to mind? Well, I would say it's essentially a presentation of the election platform for the government. It, the budget contained many measures that were announced by the government in recent weeks. Measures such as uh, the ending of the license plate for, for cars, the pledge to cut taxes by uh, five cents for the next six months starting in July. So there was not a lot of new things in the budget, new expenditure in the budget. I think the main highlight of the budget was a commitment to spend over $150 billion on infrastructure and mostly highways, transit, and hospital over the next 10 years, uh, with a commitment to spend around $20 billion uh, next year. Looks like all that money is going to be going to some top priority items, you know, getting us around the province, uh, improving healthcare, which is great. I was expecting a little more on the affordability front. We didn't see, I mean, we, we saw a little bit of talk about 
um, you know, tax relief for low-income workers and families. Does does lower taxes still provide the same economic benefit as it has in past years? Well, in theory, it should, but we are facing high inflation, which we know is impacting uh, disproportionately people on uh, the low income or on the scale of uh, lower income. So that should provide some relief uh, to low-income families. We uh, we promise to to reduce to reduce taxes and enhance the non-refundable low-income individual and family tax uh, credit. I was expecting that they would follow the what Quebec did to provide um, some subsidy of around five hundred dollars to to families directly to to tackle the increase in the cost of living we've seen directly. Definitely, there's not a lot of measures to address uh, poverty and uh, low-income problem that many families are are facing in in this province, especially given how prices have increased and will continue to increase in in the coming year. Ontario's deficit also expected to rise by about $20 billion, just shy of that. Is that a concerning number, given that uh, we've been in the red for a while? It is concerning, uh, but remember, we've been facing exceptional circumstances in the last uh, two years with uh, COVID and a pandemic, which is still going on. So it's not surprising that we are still in a deficit. Uh, What worries me is the in the budget, they presented a scenario of uh, a very optimistic scenario, which is if it happens, which will mean higher economic growth for the next couple of years. And this will bring the budget back t- to balance, not in 2027, 20, 20, 2028, that they were projecting, but in uh, 2024, 20, 20, which is much um, sooner than expected. But they also have uh, a more pessimistic scenario in the budget where the, we don't see a balanced budget or at least getting close to a balanced budget until the end of uh, 2030. So if this is um, going to happen because of a huge amount of uncertainty that the world economy, the Canadian economy is facing, I think we are in for a long time in terms of budget deficit. Jean-Paul, always appreciate your time, and thanks for breaking down the latest budget for us. You're welcome. That is Jean-Paul Lamb, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Waterloo and a former Assistant Chief Economist at the Bank of Canada. Yeah, big bucks, nearly $200 billion in spending from the province, uh, nearly $160 billion of that uh, going to highways, transit, hospitals over the next 10 years. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hopefully the weather tomorrow is going to be fantastic for our next guest because he's going to be running from Vinelands to the CN Tower tomorrow. That's 100 kilometers. Why is he doing this? Well, let's find out. His name is Ryan Douglas, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ryan, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Doing well, thanks. It's uh, it's funny that you kind of point out the weather there, because I've been looking at that all week, kind of uh, <laughs> looking at the glass glass half full or glass half empty. I don't know, but trying to be optimistic about this and uh, looking at the weather, and that's definitely one of the bright sides of what's coming up tomorrow. So it, it, it's looking encouraging. Exactly. So you are running from, as I mentioned, Vineland to the CN Tower. Why are you doing this? 
Uh, I'm doing this in support of the homeless community of Canada. I reached out to Raising the Roof uh, in December after completing a 50-kilometer ultramarathon, uh, just dipping my toes into the ultramarathon space as uh, 50 kilometers is like the, the shortest ultramarathon, if you will. And uh, as I've gotten into running in the past 12 months, wanted to challenge myself, but attach that, that challenge and pushing the boundary to a cause that I felt uh, was impactful and something that I've seen as I've kind of developed as a runner over the past past 12 months. What is an ultra marathon? Is that just anything over and above a normal marathon? Yeah, so a normal marathon distance is 42.2 kilometers. And uh, last year, a buddy and I tackled one, just kind of the, the COVID craziness. And uh, we uh, went out, not much training actually, and completed a marathon. And I thought to myself, you know, this was fun and for a day or two hurt afterwards, but then said, you know, I've kind of really enjoyed this process and in the process of improving as a runner, uh, I'm, I go to school in, in, uh, in Waterloo. So running up and down King street in Waterloo and seeing the, the problem that homelessness presents in the area, I, I made a promise to myself that once I could train a little bit more and kind of push the boundary even further, I would, uh, get something like this set up and with no races uh, in the area for this spring. And based on the, the timeline of my training, I uh, set up an event called race or uh, horseshoe for the homeless with the idea that we'd be running around the golden horseshoe of Lake Ontario. And uh, here we are one day out. So as you're running in your city, you're seeing people who don't have a place to stay and you're thinking I, I could be running for a better cause here. 100%. And so as I, work towards a 50 kilometer run in the fall this past year and it started to get colder and the winter crept in a lot of my runs were down king street from waterloo into kitchener and through kitchener towards towards cambridge a little bit and so uh, seeing some of the encampments go up and seeing uh, people struggle with the cold and, and just being able to resonate especially with the mental the mental struggle associated uh, with homelessness i mean i can't really speak to what they go through. I understand that there's, there's deep struggle there, but wanted to, to do what I could to, to make an impact and to, uh, to make the most of the challenge that I, I wanted to go after. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Ryan Douglas. He is going to be running for Raising the Roof's Homelessness Prevention Programs uh, from Vineland to the CN Tower. That's 100 kilometers. All this happens tomorrow. The event is called Horseshoe for the Homeless. How can people donate? So we have a couple links set up and the way that the event is set up is to kind of create a virtual running challenge for those who are interested. You can either sign up to participate in your own run or with a team tackling a virtual run tomorrow or on Sunday with the idea that you're seeking discomfort and getting uncomfortable for those who struggle on a daily basis. Or if you're able, a financial donation would be greatly, greatly appreciated as well. We've raised just under $4,000 thus far and uh, have a lofty goal of, of $10,000 to raise. Uh, the campaign's going to end in uh, two weeks, two weeks following tomorrow. So really looking forward to, to seeing what we can come up with and kind of rallying uh, both my network, but obviously far beyond that at this point, seeing all those who are, uh, are willing to get out there and, and challenge themselves for those who who struggle on a daily basis. Any of our listeners who are uh, interested in helping Ryan along in his run can go to raisingtheroof.org uh, or just search out Raising the Roof uh, Horseshoe for the Homeless and you can donate uh, on the webpage or get involved with the run yourself. Ryan, does doing something like this put into perspective what Terry Fox did 42 years ago? 100%. I mean, 
that happened obviously a little bit before before my time but as I've prepared for this and had some conversations with friends and family and just recently too the the anniversary of what Terry Fox did it just yeah 100% puts it into perspective to do that on one leg and to be battling what Terry was battling uh, I think it's it's crazy and I, I can't speak to to what Terry went through but uh, I'm hoping to really challenge myself and start to understand the sacrifices that Terry made uh, back in the day. Tomorrow's run kicks off at about 7 in the morning. You plan to get to the CN Tower at around 7 at night. Have you thought about the feeling of getting to the CN Tower? That's kind of what's keeping me going, to be honest. I uh, had a bit of a wrinkle earlier this week, just some tightness in my leg, wasn't real sure uh, how that would impact the run, but where all systems go and I'm really looking forward to to being at the end there and being with my friends and family who've supported me and the preparation I've put into this over the last couple months. Well, we're all cheering on. Hopefully you can hit that fundraising goal and even smash through it. Ryan, good luck on the run in the horseshoe for the homeless. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Hamilton Bulldogs kicking off the OHL playoffs in style. Running roughshod over the Peterborough Peets 7-3 last night to complete a four-game sweep of their first-round OHL playoff series. They outscored the Peets 24-9. Here to break it on down and give us a glimpse of what may happen in round two, here's Reed Duthie, play-by-play announcer with the Hamilton Bulldogs. Reed, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Everything is uh, pretty good on my end. How about yourself? Yeah, lollipops and rainbows, especially for the Bulldogs. What a performance, not only last night, but all series long. Yeah, it was a really good, strong performance to open the playoffs for the Bulldogs, both offensively and defensively. Uh, that series could have gotten even more out of hand uh, on the discipline side had it not been for the Bulldogs just trying to settle things down, especially uh, later on into games three and four in the third periods. And that's exactly what they did to pick up those last two wins on the road. You know, they talk about the, the fourth one being the hardest one to get. Peterborough put up a fight for it last night, but the Bulldogs just too much depth, too much strength through the lineup. Uh, round two, at least two teams have advanced, Hamilton and uh, North Bay, uh, the battalion sweeping um, Ottawa 4-zip. Uh, Kingston has a 3-1 lead on Oshawa, and uh, Mississauga and Barry tied 2-2. What does the second round potentially look like for the Bulldogs? Well, it's one of those now we play everyone's favorite waiting game, right? And they have to wait and see who will emerge. Is If Oshawa could pull the comeback on Kingston, then it would be Oshawa no matter what, with Ottawa having been eliminated by North Bay. If Kingston wins, they go head-to-head with the North Bay Battalion in what should be quite the series, and then the Bulldogs would get the winner of the Barry Colts and Mississauga Steelhead series, and that one has been really crazy hockey that has been i believe uh two of the three games or sorry uh two of the four games have been overtime games three have been one goal games i think the only game that wasn't was a 3-1 finish so that, those two teams have been going back and forth and back and forth so that could keep going on for a little while here. Reed Duffy is our guest, play-by-play announcer with the Hamilton Bulldogs. The Dogs completing a four-game sweep of the Peterborough Peets last night and are off to round two of the OHL playoffs. Uh, head coach Jay McKee snubbed by the OHL's GMs, not a finalist for Coach of the Year. This is madness. Yeah, and, and I, don't, I don't just say that because I've gotten to know Jay and, and because I get to work with him, but you look at what he did all season long, Rick, set new records for the Hamilton Bulldogs 
with a team that he never once had his full lineup available to him throughout the regular season. And you look at the lineup that, that the Bulldogs have now with Mason McTavish and Ryan Winterton and Arbor Jacki and Colton Cameron, all those names, a lot of those guys weren't available for long chunks of the season. Ryan Winterton didn't play in almost the first half. He wasn't available until after the trade deadline. Mason McTavish and Arbor Jacki didn't arrive until the trade deadline. Jay McKee did this through injuries and illnesses and a couple of suspensions through the season and players in and players out. They used seven players from the 2021 OHL Party Selection Draft. That seven true 16-year-old rookies had parts of this season. Finished number one overall in the league with three in the power play and penalty kill. And he's not coach of the year? I'm sorry, I, I just don't understand that. Yeah, it's criminal. Probably going to be further fuel for Jay and the Dogs, which will be nice to see. Uh, other award finalists do include a couple of Bulldogs. Marco Constantini as top goalie, and Nathan Steos is up for the Defenseman uh, Award as well. Also, 2022 OHL Priority Selection Draft is upon us. We have 30 seconds. What does Hamilton do with uh, number 23 and the other picks they have? Well, we know what the Bulldogs like to do. They like to draft for character and skill, and those are the two big things that they'll be looking for. 23 will kind of be judged on who's available on the board, Rick, at the time. Uh, we'll, we'll have to sit and wait. But after 23, it's 23, 49, 63, and 64 for the Bulldogs. That's right in the wheelhouse where Steve Stales, Dave Gray, and company have got some real good hockey players. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Reed, thanks for the time. Enjoy the weekend. Always a pleasure, Rick. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.